0: Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region.
1: Little known fact for many of our listeners, perhaps, is that New Orleans actually has a very large Vietnamese community, and that is due to the refugees who came to New Orleans after Mm -hmm. the war, in part because they could find livelihoods there in the fishing and shrimping
0: industries. Mm -hmm. I'm Rexon Yu, president of the Asia Group. Today, I'm starting with a little bit of news about the podcast. I've had a terrific run with my co-host Sherry Ann from Bloomberg News, but with expanding responsibilities on Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia, she's had to refocus her time. So today, I'm incredibly excited and pleased to welcome and introduce to you the new tea leaves co-host, and one of the Asia Group's own, Valerie Rosman. Valerie, welcome aboard.
1: Thank you, Rexon. It's great to be here.
0: So Valerie, I'm going to spend a few minutes just talking about you, so bear with me, because I want our listeners to really appreciate the depth of your experience. Valerie joined the Asia Group recently as the director of our research and analytics practice, leading the team's efforts in producing the Asia Group's Daily Asia Newsletter a range of insights into developments in the Indo-Pacific region, as well as briefing clients across the board. She serves as a principal in our Southeast Asia practice with a focus on maritime Southeast Asia. Valerie spent the last nearly two decades in the U.S. government, in numerous senior-level Asia-focused positions, including as the Deputy National Intelligence Manager or NIM, for those who work in the government, and as Deputy National Intelligence Officer for East Asia in the top intelligence organization in our government, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, or the DNI. I'm going to sprinkle in a lot of acronyms here. In addition to her stints at DNI, she also served at the CIA, the State Department, and the Treasury Department. At the CIA, she was inducted into the elite senior analytics service in recognition of her strategic analysis on the competition for influence in East Asia and her skill in utilizing big data and structured analytic techniques to solve some of the region's most complex issues. Throughout her career, she had many contributions to the president's daily brief, the PDB, and she has briefed numerous U.S. and foreign officials, including, as one might expect, the U.S. president, as well as a range of U.S. and foreign cabinet-level officials. I'm pleased to say that we share something in common, in that she received her undergraduate degree from the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, where she earned a certificate in East Asian Studies, and an Osawa Fellowship from the Princeton in Asia, where she lived, and worked in Japan. She also has a master's degree from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, where she was awarded the Tanaka Memorial Fellowship for Achievement in Japan Studies. All right, Valerie, with that wind up, based on your incredible set of experiences, let me just welcome you again to Tea Leaves. I'm so happy to have you with me.
1: Thank you, Rexon. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: So we're going to spend a little time in this episode with me interviewing you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds so fun.
0: (laughs) And because I want the listeners to just have a sense of your perspective and the kinds of insights and experiences you have had over a career that really spans a wide range of developments It spans multiple administrations, presidents from both parties with, you know, I have to say throughout the common theme of a focus on Asia. So let me start there. What led you to Asia? You've been studying and working on Asia for a long time, but you grew up in a place and time where Asia wasn't part of the everyday conversation. So, what with the fascination?
1: (laughs) So, that is a great question. And it's sort of a long ish story, but I'll try to make it as succinct as possible to let our listeners kind of understand kind of where I came from and how I got to focus on Asia. So, I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, the deep south, (laughs) where my only exposure to Asia really was through its food. And that wasn't Mm. really until I was in high school. So, that was really my first sort of exposure to Asia. At first, it was sushi, then it was Vietnamese cuisine. Little known fact for many of our listeners, perhaps, is that New Orleans actually has a very large Vietnamese community, and that is due to the refugees who came to New Orleans after mm-hmm. the war, in part because they could find livelihoods there in the fishing and shrimping industries. Mm-hmm. So I remember when I was in high school, the local food critic wrote about Phu Bay, which mm-hmm. is a Vietnamese restaurant on the West Bank, mm-hmm. and my mom and I went to try it out, and we fell in love with yeah. Vietnamese cuisine. So, as silly as that sounds, that was sort of my first introduction to Asia. Beyond Asian cuisine at that time, I had very little knowledge about geopolitics, politics in general, um, anything remotely related to D.C. It just wasn't part of the everyday conversation. At the time, I was mostly focused on math and sciences. Mm -hmm. I went to Princeton thinking I wanted to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. I found myself in that first semester in a math class, a chemistry class, a physics class, and at the same time the only other class I was taking was a writing workshop where I got to interview the local African-American community in Princeton hmm. um, to do with an oral history product. So it was the juxtaposition of all of those hard sciences yes. and math courses along with this writing workshop where I realized I was not cut out to be an engineer. <laughs> course correction course correction that's (laughs) absolutely right (laughs) a very quick one (laughs) I think I knew after the first month man I I don't want to be sitting here in all of these dry chemistry physics math courses the summer after my freshman year I did some self-reflection did an aptitude test Mm -hmm. and through that aptitude test I discovered I should probably get back to languages I had studied Mm -hmm. Spanish for about Mm -hmm. five years before college but I had tested out of um, needing to do a language course, given that I was in the engineering school initially. So I decided, okay, I want to get back into languages. And I also realized I was not good at music. Mm-hmm. No one should ever ask me to sing.
0: <laughs> no karaoke for you. No, no, and I've done that in Japan. Yes. And the,
1: my Japanese friends begged me, yeah. begged me to sing. And then they heard me sing and they immediately grabbed the microphone from me.
0: Well, you know, said, the oh, success of karaoke is all about the effort. Right. It's not about the talent. Oh. It's about the effort. <laughs>
1: Well, at the time, I thought there, there was very much um, a view that my talent wasn't worth the effort. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> so, and I, for some reason, was just sort of fascinated with Asia. So when I thought about what could I take at Princeton in terms of languages, it was basically either Chinese or Japanese. But because I was tone deaf. I could not take Chinese. So I chose Japanese, really for no good reason other than that. So from there, I started taking some Japanese um, courses, some sociology courses. I was a research assistant to Dr. Lynn White, who was Mm -hmm. focused on China, Mm -hmm. and he really encouraged me to apply for the then um, Woodrow Wilson School Mm -hmm. of Public and International Affairs. Mm -hmm. And then I got the Osawa Fellowship through Princeton in Asia, which allowed me to live in Japan for a summer, which was an amazing experience. I really found myself drawn to the culture of Japan. And I think it has something to do with some of the similarities to growing up in the South, the sense of hierarchy, respect for seniors, Mm. the strong backbone of the family being often Mm -hmm. the housewives Mm -hmm. or the women. I just really found myself drawn to it and kind of feeling like there was some connection to what I grew up in. And then from there the rest is history so to speak because then I was really drawn in and I focused on Japan and Asia for the rest of my undergraduate years as well as through my graduate coursework.
0: That's terrific. So you were often running with the Asia bug squarely in you. What was your first step? You know, you you've had a career in government, but you had some private sector prior to that. What was that progression?
1: Right. So that's a good question. How did I end up in government? Yeah. So whenever I did my undergraduate thesis on, it was on the comparative foreign direct investment or FDI environments in Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, from that thesis work and then in my graduate school years, I thought what my career goal was 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 to help U.S. companies invest
0: in mm-hmm. Asia. That mm-hmm. was sort of my mm-hmm. my goal. Mm-hmm.
1: At the time, there weren't very many companies doing that, in D.C. especially. Um, there were a handful, but most of those were global in nature, not mm-hmm. Asia-focused. Mm-hmm. So after a year, I did end up in a consulting firm, but it was mm-hmm. a strategic risk consulting firm. And I found myself at a poultry farm in the middle of America for a few weeks, <laughs> And I sat there thinking, what am I doing? I miss Asia. (laughs) So after that experience, I started talking with people in my network, some friends, um, meeting with government officials, mostly actually in the econ-focused agencies. And I remember sending my resume to a wide variety of places, never intending to apply to the CIA, but I must have because they somehow got my resume. So I was sitting in the Commerce Department talking with an alumni from Princeton about what should I consider doing or how should I approach trying to get into the government um, sphere. And I mentioned to him that I had gotten this email from CIA. Wasn't that so funny? I don't remember applying, but CIA wanted additional materials. They found me. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought nothing of it because at the time I knew very little about the intelligence world and I just didn't know what I could offer it. So I remember sitting in the office with this commerce official laughing about how I had gotten this email from CIA. And he said, you should apply. Send mm-hmm. them the rest of the materials they're asking for. Because at the end of the day, worst case, it'll just make a really fun story.
0: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm.
1: so that's how I got into the CIA. And
0: it is part of the story now, but it is this huge part of your career. You've witnessed the policymaking process from a, a vantage point that, Certainly, I can appreciate, but I think is, you know, gives you just this insight into how government works. And you've seen a lot of different developments. If you had to, you know, give me a couple highlights over the career, I know this is a, the unfair question, but I get it. So I'm going to give it to you. A couple highlights from your time in government.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. A couple of highlights. There were so many. I would say there, this isn't really a discrete example; it's not a discrete highlight, but just what I think about my time in government. Mm-hmm. What I really cherish the most are the people I met, right? Especially being in the in the intelligence community for so long, there mm-hmm. is an esprit de corps with your fellow officers, and in part it's because you work in a skiff for a large part of the day. Yep. Don't have a smartphone; you're not distracted. Right. You're there to do work, but you really do develop an amazing relationship with your coworkers, and part of that I think is because of as an analyst especially in the intelligence community coordination collaboration is key it's a huge part of the role and it's really the only way to be successful so through that coordination collaboration you really get to know your colleagues mm-hmm. And I think the second thing I would say in terms of highlights was just the ability to travel around Asia extensively Mm
0: -hmm. through
1: the course of my career growing up in New Orleans. I don't think I was on an airplane until I was in high school Mm -hmm. and that was to Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's another thing that I would say is a huge highlight, just that opportunity to um, travel around Asia. And then I think the third thing is really the opportunity to witness and support Policy on Asia, mm-hmm. the intelligence community in particular provides you um, just kind of a, a great great insight into the policymaking process and the ability to support policymakers often directly is just an amazing experience.
0: You talk about this support for policymaking, and this is, I think, when you're in the intel world, an important framework that I think might be worth just spending a moment on the. Intel World is about ultimately offering policymakers what you know and then what you think. Mm-hmm. And you know, some people when they talk about the CIA, you think about the sort of images from movies of the spies out there, the novels, the depictions. Talk a little bit more about what that analytic role is. Of the intelligence community, the CIA, the Director for National Intelligence, uh, overseeing, you know, all agencies, uh, and how it plays in the policy process.
1: Sure. So on the cool spy stuff that people see in movies.
0: There is that, <laughs> that part to the CIA. The,
1: there is that part. Yes. That's you know what we would call the operators, yes. right? They, they do the really cool stuff. Yes. I was not part of the really cool stuff. Yeah. I was the nerd at the desk uh-huh. <laughs> researching and writing papers. So when you think about the operators, they're the ones who are at the pointy end of the mm-hmm. spear. They're the ones who mm-hmm. at times are putting their lives at risk to get mm-hmm. the information that's critical to U.S. national security. The analysts, on the other hand, they are the ones, like I said, sitting at their desks using a wide variety of sources. So as CIA analyst, you don't just use CIA sources. You look at all sources, including SIGINT, signals intelligence reporting. You look at other sources of human, which is human intelligence reporting. So, you know, from the State Department, for instance, mm-hmm. not just CIA human reporting, imagery and open source. Mm-hmm. Open source is vast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you do you sit and think and read and talk with your colleagues, you talk with policymakers, you talk with academics on the outside to figure out what is the analytic line Mm -hmm. on the question that you're trying to answer, right? Mm -hmm. What is that objective assessment based on all of these sources of information? So in terms of how that feeds into the policy process, the intel community driven in large part by the analysts in terms of their support to the policymaking process, they're there to give policymakers objective assessments. Mm -hmm. And it can cover a wide range of questions from, for example, how is a specific country thinking about a particular problem? What do they want from U.S. engagement? What kinds of pressures might a leader be facing when he or she comes to Washington? Mm -hmm. How are countries reacting to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, for Mm -hmm. instance, how much support should the U.S. expect to receive for its policies? Mm-hmm. So the intel mm-hmm. officers are in the room to provide that ground truth. And in some ways, that's much easier than being a policymaker. <laughs> we can poke holes in policies. <laughs> we, can, we can tell policymakers why a particular policy might not be working and the opportunities right. to improve the policies. We right. do not have to create policy.
0: You know, to that point, Valerie, you know, you have had the opportunity to Brief presidents, US presidents, brief cabinet members, ministers from overseas, but let's focus on the US government from a personal perspective. You know, if I were a young analyst and I was, you know, been called in and said, okay, you have to go go over to the White House and brief president, the national security advisor, and you were the last person I was going to see before I walked out the door. Not focused on content, but you know, from your experience in these types of encounters, when you're asked to brief you know, the highest levels of our government, what's your advice, right, in terms of how to approach that kind of encounter?
1: I think my biggest piece of advice is to prepare, 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 uh-huh. and over-prepare. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it, it has changed depending on who the president is. Uh-huh. There are different preferences in terms of how each president likes to receive information, whether it's through written products or through a briefing. Mm -hmm. Um, And even in the briefings, there are different styles of briefings Mm -hmm. that each president has preferred. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not only preparing substantively, but understanding the audience, right? That's Mm -hmm. the the key thing that analysts learn when they're going through um, training on how to be an analyst and how to give briefings and how to write, is to know your audience. So know the president in this instance, know what his preferences are, know what his likely questions will be, mm-hmm. his or her, I should say, yes. likely questions will be, and then just prepare. And I think people would be amazed at the amount of preparation that goes into mm-hmm. these sorts of briefings.
0: The simple advice to know your audience applies in so many different circumstances. <laughs> it's life advice, frankly. Yes. Let's talk about Asia. You've been watching Asia. You've lived in Asia. You've traveled across the region for years now. Biggest changes in the Indo-Pacific over the last two decades? Not a small question, but not a small region. No, there are so Uh, many changes.
1: Right. I think um, beyond the obvious ones, and I would cast the obvious ones as, you know, now we have a more competitive, sort of less cooperative, for now at least, less cooperative relationship with China. The other sort of obvious change that I think people are well aware of is that we have a more networked alliance structure mm-hmm. in Asia, moving mm-hmm. away from the traditional U.S. hub and spoke model.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So beyond that, I think one of the changes is a change in nomenclature. Before, when I first started, my certificate from Princeton shows it. We used to talk about East Asia. Mm-hmm. And now it's we talk a lot more about the Indo-Pacific, right? Mm-hmm. So we're bringing in India and the Pacific Islands into the fold a lot more, a few years ago, at least over you know the past five to 10 years, we rarely talked about the Pacific Islands. Sorry to our Pacific Island listeners, but we rarely talked about it unless there was an election in Fiji, for instance. So that focus on the Indo-Pacific is quite interesting. So I would imagine in the next few years, we could see some changes in U.S. government in terms of structures. Yeah. Right now, it's really just the Department of Defense that has Indo-Pacific structures, right? Like the Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii. On Southeast Asia, since I did... Cover Southeast Asia for a large part of my career, I would say the the biggest change has been a shift from a CT focus, at least when I first started focusing on Southeast Asia, to um, kind of a a shift in focus in terms of the priority that Southeast Asia has gotten Mm -hmm. from the U.S. government under the, the first Obama administration with the rebalance, initially the pivot, and then the rebalance to Asia, where there's a lot more focus on engaging Southeast Asia, even at the highest levels, including the first attendance by a U.S. president at the East Asia Summit. Yes. Um, so that was huge. And also an increased focus on the economic relationship. Unfortunately, we ultimately withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But at the time, through those negotiations, just bringing Southeast Asia um, into kind of the economic fold of U.S. sort of grand strategy, mm-hmm. that was a huge difference
0: as mm-hmm. well. We just, the uh, President Biden just hosted the Philippines President for a a visit, which in my mind is a substantial development given in the U S Philippines relationship has transpired uh, over the last few years, been a a bit of a rocky period. So um, I think that's in some ways, almost emblematic of a contemporary example of the kind of overall shift that you're referring to.
1: Right. Exactly. It has been exciting to watch that visit unfold. Just the energy, that's being put on, on both sides, too, right. on the Philippine side, as well as the U.S. side, into deepening the alliance relationship, both on the economic front and the defense front.
0: So, Valerie, we are coming up on time, but you know, as we go forward and, and you and I collaborate and co-conspire with uh, guests to come, uh, you and I both talked about asking our guests about the future and what gives us hope. So I'm going to ask you that question. What gives you hope about the future role of the United States in the Indo-Pacific?
1: I love that question. I try to be optimistic as much as possible. Sometimes it's hard, but <laughs> so I would say two things give me hope about the future of the U.S. and in the Indo-Pacific. The first of which I do see a growing kind of bipartisan support on the importance Of deepening our alliances and partnerships in the Indo-Pacific, which I think is just huge. For example, the Partner with ASEAN Act, which is currently, I believe, with the Senate, it passed Mm -hmm. the House. Mm -hmm. That's demonstrative of the recognition that both parties are placing on the importance of even ASEAN, which sometimes it's been a struggle to highlight the importance of ASEAN to policymakers and to people on the Hill. The second thing I would say is that what gives me hope is the caliber of the young people who are working on Asia who think beyond a U.S.-centric model mm-hmm. of Asia, which I certainly used to do. I hate to admit it, but I certainly was there. And Now I'm trying to focus my, my brain on thinking about the Indo-Pacific in a non-U.S.-centric way. Um, so I think with those two things combined, it'll ultimately lead to a more thoughtful, nuanced, and impactful U.S.-Asia policy that's equally beneficial for the U.S. and the
0: Indo-Pacific. I love both of those, Valerie. It's hard to find points of bipartisan agreement in Congress. It typically is hard to find them, and I think particularly today. So let's all hold on to to that one. And, you know, you and I both have children, and we know that the the youth is our future. And it's what gives us uh, hope and optimism. So thank you for that. I'm gonna, it's going to carry me through the rest of today. <laughs> <laughs> Valerie, thanks so much for joining us to introduce yourself and for us to have just a bit of a conversation between you and me. I'm excited to have you on as the Tea Leaves co-host and I look forward to our conversations in the future as we as we help our listeners better understand the geopolitics, the economies, the cultures, and the societies of the Indo-Pacific.
1: Thank you, Rex. And it was great to be here to talk about myself, which is my least favorite thing to do, but I'm looking forward to co-hosting Tea Leaves with you.
0: And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.